Well, let's see. We have on the bags. We have who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Oh, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Abbott and Costello never did clear up who was on first base. But last week in Mi Familia Volta versus Abbott, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit confirmed who the defendants should be in voting rights cases related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's October 18th, 2020. Today I review the Mi Familia decision, an important case about Texas's voting practices during the current pandemic, and examine how it turned much more on the who of what specific entities and persons were being sued, rather than the what of the specifics about the Texas voting laws at issue. On the one hand, you have three plaintiffs, an organization called Mi Familia Vota, joined by the Texas State Conference of the NAACP, and an individual, Guadalupe Torres. On the other side, two defendants, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, and Ruth Hughes, the Texas Secretary of State, the official who leads the agency that is responsible for administering elections in Texas. This case began with a much wider focus, but by the time it reached the U.S. Fifth Circuit, it had crystallized around four key issues. The first, an executive order by the governor that required masks to be worn in public places, but exempting voters and poll workers from that requirement. Second, a provision of the Texas Election Code allowing certain voters to vote curbside. Third, another election code provision which let certain counties participate in something called Texas's countywide polling place program if they meet certain criteria. And if you're able to do so, that allows the use of electronic voting machines in place of traditional paper ballots. Fourth and finally, two provisions of the Texas election code that had to do with the number and location of polling places during early voting. So fundamental issues about how voting would be conducted during this challenging pandemic. As is the Fifth Circuit's custom for most of its business, three judges, a three-judge panel, considered the case. They joined in one opinion for the panel. Chief Judge Priscilla Owen of Texas wrote the opinion, joined by Judges Eugene Davis of Louisiana and Leslie Southwick of Mississippi. The threshold question, who? The governor and the secretary of state said they were the wrong defendants. Here's why it matters. The underlying issue there is a tension between two important constitutional amendments. The 11th Amendment, the first one added to our Constitution after the first 10, the Bill of Rights, says that a citizen of a state may not sue that state in the federal courts. On the other hand, you have the 14th Amendment, which guarantees all citizens due process and equal protection under the law as guaranteed by the federal Constitution. Thus the tension. The 11th Amendment does not mean that much if any citizen can sue state government about a perceived mistreatment, and conversely, the 14th Amendment does not mean much if abuses of power by state government cannot be challenged in the federal courts. How to resolve the tension? The answer lies in a Supreme Court opinion of over 100 years ago with a very different topic, but one that was just as important for its time. The case is called Ex Parte Young. It was decided in 1908, and to help place that in time and space, 1908 is notable as the year that Henry Ford began mass production of the Model T. The problem that gave rise to that case is an echo of the issues we confront today with the massive market presence of tech giants like Google and Facebook. Their problem was the domination of what was called the Gilded Age economy by the railroads. The case arose in landlocked 
Minnesota, where its entire connection to the rapidly expanding national economy of the United States was the railroad system. And to access that system and thus the national economy, citizens of Minnesota and businesses in Minnesota had to pay what the railroads charged. The state of Minnesota, as did many other states across the country at the time, passed laws to limit rates railroads could charge for their freight services. Shareholders of the Northern Pacific Railway sued in federal court. They said that the laws violated their due process and other constitutional rights. And among other defendants, they sued Edward Young, the attorney general of the state of Minnesota, to prevent him from enforcing these laws. History records two things about Mr. Young. First, he had a spectacular mustache. A few pictures of him that we have from this time called to mind Hercule Poirot. And second, he argued, like the Texas state officials who were sued in the Mi Familia case, that the 11th Amendment barred the suit against him. The district judge saw otherwise. Young ended up being held with contempt and taken into the custody of the U.S. Marshal Service, and he filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court for a writ of habeas corpus to release him. Thus, the case is called Ex Parte Young, rather than the more traditional plaintiffs versus defendants style. Our Mi Familia case summarizes the rule that resulted. The Supreme Court's decision in Ex Parte Young allows injunctive or declaratory relief against a state official in her official capacity provided the official has a sufficient connection with the enforcement of an allegedly unconstitutional law. Footnote in the opinion quotes the actual holding of Young itself, which is clear even today, despite the tendency of writers back then to use more flowery language. That court said, In making an officer of the state a party defendant in a suit to enjoin the enforcement of an act alleged to be unconstitutional, it is plain that such officer must have some connection with the enforcement of the act, or else it is merely making him a party as a representative of the state, and thereby attempting to make the state a party. Thus, you cannot sue the state, but you can sue, without running afoul of the 11th Amendment, the official in charge of enforcing an offending law. With that observation, that calling to mind of Ex Parte Young, most of the Mi Familia case fell apart. True, the governor had promulgated the executive order at issue, but the power to issue such an order under Texas law is not the power to enforce it. Same holds true for the Secretary of State. There's a possible exception, the court noted, to the law that was challenged about electronic voting machines, as the Secretary does have some authority to make rules there. But there again, the responsibility for implementing the relevant part of that law, whether to move away from the electronic machines that are already in those counties and substitute paper ballots, that decision belongs not to the Secretary, but to the county-level officials who actually carry out the rules and regulations about elections and decide what to do with the machinery that they have in place in their counties. In sum, the court observed, although a court can enjoin state officials from enforcing statutes, such an injunction must be directed to those who have the authority to enforce those statutes. In the present case, that would be county or other local officials. Ex parte Young did not end up so well for Mr. Young, but the rule that was laid in place by that case and that has been in place in our country for over 100 years served the governor and secretary of state of Texas well and led to dismissal of the claims against them in this case, except for a set of claims involving the Voting Rights Act. All the parties agreed that does not present this 11th Amendment issue. When Congress passed that law, it used its 15th Amendment enforcement power to abrogate state sovereign immunity. Here again, though, a federalism issue was encountered, and a similar one to what we just talked about in the who question about Ex parte Young, the Fifth Circuit observed. 
examination of the relief that the plaintiffs seek in the case before us reveals that in many instances, court-ordered relief would require the governor or the secretary of state to issue an executive order or directive or to take other sweeping affirmative action. It noted that it was at least conceivable that a challenge could be brought to one of the regulations about mask requirements, but discouraged it as a practical matter, noting the observation it made about the distinction between enacting something, enforcing something, and then correcting it with an affirmative order by a court later on. And that holding is no surprise. It relates not only to the policies underneath Ex parte Young and the rule of that case, but it goes more fundamentally to the power of judicial review as recognized long ago in Barbary versus Madison. It is a power to judicially review the acts of the political branches, but it is not a power to substitute some other judgment in place of that. A federal court is entitled under Marbury and the operation of our Constitution to say that an enactment of Congress violates the Constitution, but it may not come up with its own competing enactment and place that in the law instead of what the political branches did. Rather, it simply returns it to that branch to revise if it does find a constitutional problem. Who, what, where, when, why, and how? Today on Coal Mind, we looked at the first question, who, and how it can be case dispositive in cases about constitutional issues that involve state government. The reasons why go to very basic principles about the organization of our state and federal governments and the interaction between them and the power of judicial review and the interaction of the judicial and political branches of our government. As the 2020 election continues to draw near, I'll be reviewing other topics about the election process, the underlying legal principles. You can follow this podcast on any of the main directories, and if you enjoy it, I encourage you to leave a good review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.